There was a time in the ancient world, a very long time, in which the central cultural problem must have seemed an inexhaustible outpouring of books. Where to put them all? How to organize them on the groaning shelves? How to hold the profusion of knowledge in one's head? The loss of this plenitude would have been virtually inconceivable to anyone living in its midst. Then, not all at once, but with the cumulative force of a mass extinction, the whole enterprise came to an end. What looked stable turned out to be fragile, and what it seemed for all time was only for the time being. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Walls, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, production of Sickbook Radio and distributed by thesickbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets, at Sync42 and at Syncbook. It's Tuesday, May 16th, and today we'll take a peek back at Treefort, and then consider local politics and the media in the digital Trump age. And we'll do so with an individual who inspired me at Storyfort at the various media panels on which he spoke. And I'm speaking here of Greg Hahn. Hahn is Boise State's Associate Vice President for Communications and Marketing, which oversees media relations, magazines, campus communications, advertising, social media, web strategy, and printing and graphic services. Before joining Boise State, he worked for 16 years in Idaho media at Idaho Public Television, the Idaho Statesman, and the Twin Falls Times News. He also is able to put together a pretty sharp Kentucky Derby suit every year. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing well, Doug. Thanks for thanks for having me on. You bet. Okay, so let's let's start with the easy stuff. How many tree forts have you gone to? Oh, every one. Every single one. Every single though. What I always tell everybody, they get freaked out by it. And I said, you know, I've I've watched, I've counted before, and I've got to like 40 bands at Tree Fort. But there are 420 bands at Tree Fort. So if you figure that you've, if you go to 40 bands in five days, that's a boatload of bands, and you've pretty much missed all of Tree Fort. So yeah. So even though I have been, I, I've physically tried to go to as many Tree Forts as I, as many minutes of Tree Fort as I can. What. You, it's impossible to see tree for it. So you, I've I've gone and missed every tree for it. Okay, even though you've been to every one, <laughs> I feel like I've missed them all. You've missed My wife them says all. it's a glass half empty sort of thing. Ah. I mean, ninety percent of the show, ninety percent of the shows, I didn't see. <laughs> like if you did, if you missed ninety percent of anything, you'd be like, well, I pretty much didn't do that. Well, I feel like I missed the first one, but <laughs> all the other ones, boy, I really feel like I did those. Oh well, good. Yeah, that's a better attitude. I should have that. I, uh, no, I, you know, it's one of my favorite things to do for sure. I started going just because I love music and then I used to play in a band when I was younger and I got to know those guys in a weird way through like basketball and music and so early on uh, was excited to know that it was going to happen and dove right in and have kind of been full bore involved ever since. What was your band called, and what part of the world were you in then? <laughs> Draw. We were we called Draw. It was here in Boise. It was we were kind of older. Some of the folks had been kind of musicians for their whole lives, and just friends of mine. I kind of landed into it. I didn't have this. I could play like enough of everything that when they recorded a little album and they had put some extra tracks in there, they thought that there were some holes in the music, so then I came in and filled in the holes. But we lucked out. We had like one fan, uh, Doug Marsh, and he invited us on tour with them. And so we both, we all had real jobs. We all had to take like a extended vacation from work and uh, got to travel around the West. It was a lot of fun. It was we sort of like built a, this film. It, 
with Build to Spill, it was like a fantasy for me being kind of a never having been in that world. I mean, I'd been played music by myself for a long time, but I'd never kind of been in a in a in a rock band or anything. It was like a fantasy camp. It was like a rock and roll fantasy camp. Wow. And and then do you have any stories from that experience where like like, like you really tasted a, a a type of life that mere mortals don't have access to, I guess. It's true. It is a little different. You realize there's a rock and roll hotel in every big city. Uh, which is kind of cool. I didn't really know that. Um, and it's place, you know, some the Roosevelt in L.A. and the the Phoenix in San Francisco. We stay and I've gone back since and stayed there. And it's, you know, it's kind of fun to stay there as a normal person. But it's just sort of, it's you know, I think the first time we were there with the band, there was uh, the Flaming Lips were staying at the hotel and like Liz Fair was staying at the hotel. Wow. It's just. It just is a place where that's where people stay when they're going through uh, the big city. So that was kind of a neat, that was a little window into a world that does sort of still exist. Um, it was, you know, most of the time you're just sitting around trying to, you know, trying to stay awake long enough to do the next show. <laughs> These guys who do this for a living for a long time, that is a tough life. Um, yeah. it's, it's just a lot of travel, a lot of, a lot of waiting around. A lot of you know eating you know for an opening band trying to figure out can you eat on the on the tiny per diem that you have as part of the deal with the bars that you're playing in or the you know when this was we were lucky you know we kind of launched into a pretty good gig just by our relationship so um, those guys work hard. Well, then did your band ever play a tree fort or was that well no? Before? We were done. We were done before then. Uh, Somebody moved away and kind of fizzled out, but you know pieces of it, pieces like our, I don't, you know, John McMahon. He he's plays cello and he played guitar. He's a he's just an amazing musician. He's he's actually toured Europe with Built to Spill before, and he was in a band called the Slee Stacks years ago. Um, he sort of has stayed connected. Our drummer was Todd um, Chavez, and he's played with a million people too. I know he plays with Thomas Paul and he plays with uh, Ned Evett and he's toured all over the place, but he also does fun stuff. He'll play like the, the uh, Shakespeare festivals, musicals. And uh, he was, he spent last summer, I think in Tahoe playing at their Shakespeare festival. So some of the guys are kind of working, working musician types, but uh, we sort of, uh, we predated that. We were in the, we weren't around very long. There was like a brief glorious moment in the right, you know, early two thousands where where we existed and we got to pretend that uh you know we didn't just have desk jobs well then what what 10 percent of tree fort did you see this year this year there were some fun st i thought the big stage the, the the main stage bands were a lot of fun lizzo was amazing yeah um you know i liked i like angel olsen as a general rule and i thought she was good though she kind of thought i don't know what she was hearing up there she kept having a hard time with it um do you think it was actual technical difficulties or that she was just a little off? That's a good question. It is different. You know, you can't, what you hear outside and what you hear up there are totally different. You know, it could be echoing. It could be the monitors out. You know, you could, I mean, you could have a, I mean, if you're playing it, you're not hearing every piece of your guitar, but that could very well just be a, um, some, some problem with the monitor and it's everybody else can hear it just fine. So, I, you know, I don't think it's just all in their head necessarily. <laughs> it's hard to power through it, right? If you like, if you sound terrible to yourself, you're gonna you 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 lose a little bit of confidence. But 
I've had both. I've had like a day where we thought, man, that was the greatest thing ever. And everyone's like, yeah. And then a day where it was like, man, we were not, something was wrong that whole time. And the crowd was totally fine. So yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's the experience of doing it and the experience of watching it are different. So, but I, you know, I like, I actually thought this was the best year for what I call the day forts. Yes. <laughs> the story. I mean, that, uh, the refugee panel on this for story for it was one of the most amazing things I've come across. That was, you know, I don't know if you were there for that, but Dave Beter mo- uh, moderated. He just sort of, and by moderated, he just sort of sat there with his mouth open like the rest of us did because the three folks who talked were so amazing. Um, and I know that there's been kind of a concerted effort in Boise, which is kind of cool, through Story Story Night and some other efforts to kind of talk to, kind of engage the refugees in storytelling and telling their story and. There was a woman who's actually a Boise State graduate who just told just a spectacular story about growing up a refugee and from Afghanistan and kind of bouncing around and ending up in Russia and then coming here, um, just never once doubting her own ability to kind of to to achieve what she wanted to do to the point that she was like a first grader pushing her way into class because they you know she started in a place where women couldn't go to school and then arguing her way into a different like she finished first grade in Afghanistan and when she got to Russia they wanted her to repeat it and she marched into the principal's office and demanded that he quiz her and move her up to second grade you know all the way through to getting her computer science degree here at Boise State and now she's teaching here I mean it's just it's amazing to hear that kind of re- life reaffirming story right you it's not we it's we hear these refugee stories and they're always so twisted it's always like all of this suffering and then they're living in this refugee camp and then they get here and their horrible things are still happening and there's all this struggle and it it's 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 nice to occasionally hear it from that pers- from a real perspective of somebody who's just this is kind of the life they knew and she just wasn't going to kind of she just wasn't going to slow down and it, it's just a little bit more of an empowering moment to say okay this is these guys have amazing stories to tell and they're kind of amazing parts of the community. Um, that to me was my favorite part of the whole, and I love all the music and I will always go out and hear a bunch of shows and do all that. But that if we can kind of turn the day forts into sort of these kind of community defining moments, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's the promise I think of the whole, of the whole fort experience. And then listeners should know that the Dave Beter host that you were talking about, the moderator, he's also, Sometimes the he's mayor, the mayor, the mayor of Boise. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And he was a great, you know, and he's been very supportive. I mean, I, I, I just read this this morning or last night. The Boise, one in every sixteen people in Boise is a has is a refugee. I mean, that's an incredible statistic. Like eight hundred a year come here. I mean, you wouldn't think it from Boise, you know, from what anybody knows about Boise, and you wouldn't necessarily know it if you walk around town. But I think that it's it's the town itself has a little bit of a different um, personality and feel than people maybe give us credit for. Or we're living in a bubble. We're definitely living in a bubble. There's no doubt about that. And it's not like everything's perfect, right? I mean, in the same story, this is in the blue review, which is published by our school public service, but the, you know, the refugees tell story. I mean, they, they have run-ins, right? People talk to them at the grocery store or they yell at them as they drive by. One of the other, the, the a younger woman who spoke at the, who was probably, I don't know, in around early 20s, she she spoke in this same panel and she was talking about a soldier who had started kind of yelling at her at the Costco. 
or Winco downtown. She's getting yelled at by this guy. And, you know, we're all feeling, oh, this must have been a horrible moment for her. Of course, then she recounts what she's gone through. And, uh, you know, a guy yelling at her at the grocery store is literally the least of the problems she's ever come across in a refugee lifestyle from Iraq, you know, growing up in Iraq. And her dad had become, they had to leave because he was a translator. He worked with the Americans. And here Mm -hmm. she was getting yelled at by this guy who was a soldier thinking, my dad might have saved your life. Um, and he's telling her to, you know, take that headscarf off your head. This is a free country. And she says, well, that doesn't make any sense. I thought this was a free country. So if I want to wear a headscarf, I should, you know, so she had a very good sense of humor in describing it. And it wasn't, and again, it's empowering. It's not, here's a moment I was a victim. It was, here's a moment where I didn't let myself become a victim. That's a much better story. And I know there are moments where people become victims, but there's something to be said about kind of giving somebody a voice um, and, and and kind of embracing that. So that was good. Yeah. What about the the day fort where they recorded the podcast? Did you happen to make it to that Oh, one? I did go to that, the Nate Silver podcast. That was great. It was totally packed. Um, they were funny. They were engaged. They spent, they did a, some Boise research. I never did run into them afterwards. My wife did. And I think they just had a really good time. What I heard from the Chief Fort folks is that they were like, you know, we we're trying to build out Hack Fort. And, um, and this was the first year I had been, the last few, since Hack Fort was formed, I'd been kind of really on that organizing committee, even though I'm not a tech guy. I just kind of landed in that world when Boise State got involved. And this year, Drew Larona, who's one of the Chief Fort founders, and Janessa White, who's a, a kind of a VR filmmaker, uh, aficionado person, they sort of took over the programming. They did a great job. And they just, they thought maybe somebody from 538 will show up, right? You know, let's, let's just reach out. And they did it on Twitter. They didn't have any connections. Really? It was sort of a blind outreach. And they, and, uh, and they said, well, what do you mean? Is, do we get to come for the whole week? And they're like, sure. And they're like, we'll be, Nate will be there. And, um, so they just thought it was kind of a cool opportunity to come and do it. And they did, they did hang out. They went out, they went out and partied at night and they went to the shows and they, you know, they were, we had a little after event just because at, at, at the uh, computer science department, which is right across the street from the uh, Egyptian theater where they, they taped the show. And we had about 70, 80 people come by, which was great. And we didn't know if they were, you know, we kind of offered it to them and they were like, no, there's a band we really want to see over at Pengilly. So they all, you know, took off right after the taping and just started tree forting. Uh-huh. And then later on, I think my wife saw them at Mac DeMarco. I mean, they were out and about um, as a group and individually. So, and, and to me, that's what we always did with Hack for it. The, the, the beauty of a five day conference. And I don't know if you or anybody who listens ever goes to these conferences, especially if you're invited to speak, you, you show up for your event. It's you're like, well, I'm here talking, so I'm not going to learn much from the people who are here because they're here to learn from me. And then you get out, you, you fly in, maybe you spend the night at the hotel, you come down, you do your talk, Sometimes that's it. Sometimes you get on a plane and leave. I mean, you're never the conferences or the seminar or these events. They don't really do a good job of kind of embracing you into what's going on. And Tree Fort from the start was really aimed at doing that, especially for the bands, right? I mean, it was if you talk to any of the bands from around the West, that's one of the first things they bring up is they just feel like Tree Fort was kind of invented with them in mind, and for good reason. Eric Gilbert, who's one of the founders, was a you know traveling musician for years in Finriggins and still is. I mean, he knew what it was like to show up someplace and want to, you know, want to feel engaged, but not and not just sort of trot out for your show and then leave. So 
so they they get these week on passes and they they have opportunities to kind of do things multiple times now you might see a band on the main stage play a pretty small venue and a, on another night you know we had a couple of years ago we had emily wells she was a main stage artist she talked at hackfort and she gave a great presentation to hackfort on kind of technology and how she was using it in music she dj'd for yoga fort i mean she stayed the whole time and then literally by the end she was she and her girlfriend were like they were driving around looking at houses i mean they didn't you know they live in brooklyn they didn't move here but they <laughs> they were tempted they were tempted and that's kind of this experience if you can get somebody and it, and, and it's not just about selling boise it's about we have this really cool thing going on you do want to go you want to poke your head in it at these different forts and you do want to have an opportunity to, to see music. You know, these bands, they don't, you know, you're traveling in a lot as a band, you're going to see the bands that you're playing with. So you might, you know, and that'll change as you're on the road, but um, this is a chance for them to catch up with a bunch of things that they've been hearing about and people that they might've met along the way and they can catch up with them. It's what I love about whether you're going to the main stage, you're going to one of the, you know, 20 some venues or however many there are now you're going to run. It's, it's, there are band members in there with you, and sometimes they're big. Sometimes they're big main stage band guys coming in and watching somebody they really want to see at the Shrine or at the Neurolux or something. And that, you know, if you just look at Instagram and find everybody who took a selfie with Mac DeMarco this year, you realize how much that guy just walked around town and went to shows. I, I think part of that is him too, though. And I mean, I think this is the kind of festival that really speaks to his personality. Like, yeah, no, I think that's true. And there are people, there have definitely been people who come and play and leave. Right. I mean, I don't think it's going to be, it's not always that everybody's going to fall in love with the place, but you know, I remember, I mean, I've stood, I've seen a band. Like I remember the first time I saw Thunder Pussy a few years ago, you talk about one of my favorite moments at tree fort. Those guys are amazing. Um, loud and raucous and over the top performers. Uh, kind of a, I don't know, they sound, it's like a, if a bunch of 20 something women did like Motley Crue covers is basically what they sound like. If you've never seen them and they, they, they don't, it's all originals, but it's that kind of heavy metal. And they're just, they have this kind of following of people and there's people, you know, I, but the first time I saw them was at, at Hannah's, which is not necessarily a place I go in real life, <laughs> but at Tree Fort, it's a really fun venue. And Rocky Johnson who's owned it for you know, any number of years, who knows how many years she's been over there. She's a great hostess. The bands all love her. And she, she introduces everybody. She makes it very much a, a unique thing that's happening there. That's different than all the other stages. This was an all women night. The first night that this was two or three years ago. Um, and it was first time Thunder Pussy, I think played here and it was them and mostly muff. And then the Rocky Johnson, there were all, all these women bands. It was sort of this women power night. And I got over there for this week, this kind of performing artist who was a friend of John Michael Schertz and brought her from New York and it was a total trip. And she was, and then it just, we just kind of ended up staying to these other bands and it turned out to be one of the best nights I've ever had at Tree Fort. And, but during something here, she is sort of wailing and screaming this lead singer and I'm standing, it turns out right next to her mother cause she grew up in Ketchum. <laughs> and so it's this weird local connection to the world i mean it's it's sort of boy i mean people it's still a small thing right it's still never mentioned on sirius xmu right they talk about pitch the upcoming you know they're still on a south by southwest high on all these like indie and pitchfork and all the you know the big time indie media indie music media this 
you know, they'll mention tree for it, but it's just, it's still under the radar. And so it is, it has a very local feel to it, even when there are these bigger national moments. But I, I saw those guys and then I went to go see somebody on the main stage, whoever that would have been probably, um, I don't know. I don't know who it was. And then all of a sudden they're all right next to me watching the main stage band, right? This whole band together kind of come plowing into the crowd and they're standing right next to us. And I was like, you guys, and that happens every, every single night at tree Fort. It does. And it happened to me this year. So thunder pussy are rocking the main stage, you know, one day. And then the next day they're come. All of them are in line behind me trying to get into, uh, Oh, I forgot his name now. Uh, the guy that was playing with the Tall Tall Trees. What was his name? The violin guy that was everywhere this year that was so good. The other oh, thing, you know, I missed him too, yeah. Uh, That's what I mean. I missed, I pretty much, I missed all, I missed 90% of Tree Fort this time, so I probably didn't see it. Oh, I can't believe I've forgotten his name already. But uh, he was also, like, one of the things that I really like taking advantage of is the record exchange. I think they're a great asset because they do these. They do day forts also that are mostly kid friendly, right? Yeah. Well, and getting the music, I was making it. I went to the Meat Puppets at the Neurolux, right? Because I'm a 45 year old white man, right? And I was making a joke about that. Actually, it was with Anna Webb and some people before the Story Fort thing we did. And Anna said, "Oh, well, if you were a 50 something white person, you would have gone to the record exchange at five because." We all went there, my entire graduating class of 1984, whenever she finished high school. And uh, everyone was there, and we saw five songs, and it was great, and we all got home in time to walk our dogs and go to bed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there is something to be said about the full, yeah, the full experience is worth it. Yeah, I take those, you know, you got to take a little bit of the time off in those early days to really experience the full day stuff, I think. That's well, my advice to everybody. Yeah, I, I think beginning with year two, I I take off that whole week from work every year, just so that I can I can do more than ten percent. We track it. I would like proof that you went to more than that. You went to seventy bands. If you went to eighty bands, you went to twenty percent. <laughs> There's no way you went to eighty bands. Well, that's the other thing, too, though. It's like, so th this year I decided I am done watching sound checks. This is so stupid. Why do I go and I watch, you know, it's like, how many minutes am I wasting? Because I'm always worried that I'm going to not get into the Not venue. get in, right. And that definitely happened to me this year uh, with Starfucker, where, like, right. there, are certain, there are certain lines that you know... They are not, you know, you're going to spend the whole night out on the street. And actually, that, that year that you're talking about Thunder Pussy at Hannah's, that line seemed monumental to me that night. And I, I bailed. I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I'm going to go try and see something else. Right. Yeah. You know, we do, I, uh, when I was more involved in Hackfort and stuff than you kind of get the past, this year and in other years, I just, I've bought my wife and I the, the, the Super Pass, not the, not the secret handshake one, but the three hundred dollar pass. The zip line is what they call it. The zip line, yeah, the zip line, and it's it's worth it because it that it it it's that moment is gone from you know it, it's you know you're gonna if it's one hundred fifty bucks more than the regular pass, you're gonna spend one hundred fifty bucks on beer and food and I mean you're gonna just budget. It's a whole year. You got a full. Everybody gives me a hard time about it, and I'm like, you have you have twelve months now to plan. If you save ten dollars a month. 
you only have to come up with 30 more dollars at the end of the thing, right? You can pull this off. It is every year I'm blown away that everybody hasn't bought the zip line. Like I'm just shocked <laughs> that like I keep thinking it's going to become the regular line and it doesn't. So it's like it, it, and, and people get it. Like you get, you know, it's hard to sort of just walk past 300 people and you feel bad for the second that you're standing in front of the people who've waited for a long time. And then you get in the thing and like literally like the first step into the venue, the, the guilt starts to go away. The second step, like, like literally the third step you've forgotten about that, that any of that has ever existed. So <laughs> it's, you know, it, I don't know. It's a hundred, you're already spending 150 bucks. It's, easy for me to say because I have a job, but I feel like if I were in any situation in my life, I would have, I'd have found the priorities to be able to take that one level of anxiety away. Dang tree for it. Okay. So you mentioned that in years past, you've been part of the Hackfort team, but that you you weren't, you didn't do that this year, but what right. role did you play this year? Um, we, well, Boise State's a sponsor, a big sponsor, and that, I'm kind of the main liaison between the university and the, and that is entirely relationship based, right? It's having played basketball for years with Eric Gilbert and and uh, Phil Merrill from the Dark Swallows, who was worked here at Boise State and was kind of the one of the guys who came up with the idea of Hackfort to begin with. So we started as a Hackfort sponsor. I mean, it's kind of interesting from the university standpoint. This is with my hat on for a second. It's it's. Boise State has a music department, you know, very much, a, you know, kind of a devotion to arts and, and culture, but just sponsoring a music festival is probably not exactly in the realm of what a university would be doing on its own. So, but I knew that there was a lot going on, that Treefort was becoming this sort of part that was more than just music. It was kind of helping reshape what Boise is, kind of Boise's self-image and Boise's actual, I mean, it's sort of this DIY um, existence in Boise and Treefort was kind of the the symbol of of what was going on in town. And so I, you know, I was excited when they when Eric and Phil had sort of come up with this idea of could we do a tech portion? I think at, at the time Yoga Fort had existed, Ale Fort, you know, they weren't they weren't really con they were they were experience based. It wasn't necessarily content based. I just sort of made that up, but that's kind of a slight difference between those. Um, they had some discussions, you know, the first couple of years of Treefort, they did have like industry discussions, like how do you, how to navigate, you know, record labels and all that, you know, that type of stuff that they thought maybe bands would want to go to. But we hadn't really developed a, a kind of the idea of this sort of day fort experience. So Hackfort then came along and we, Boise State got involved. It was a really great chance. We had this growing computer science department, um, it was. It really became a way for the university to both get involved with this kind of community-defining existence in Treefort, or, and support what was really important to a lot of kind of our partners in the in the software and and tech and tech worlds. And these guys had just gotten together maybe a year or two before and 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 really helped fund the growth of the computer science department. And we were like, there was a moment that about eight software development firms all chipped in. Um, to the tune of several hundred thousand dollars for scholarships to kind of double the computer science department, the state gave a loan. And it was a chance to say, here, I think we can build this community 
in a really cool and aggressive and forward-thinking way if we can get involved. So that was sort of our entree in uh, to TreeFort. Around the same time, StoryFort started. Um, film The Film Fort, what they called film, TreeFort Film Festival, was just getting going then, but now it's Film Fort. And those are both a little bit more connected to our programming and our um, and, and and kind of more mission critical, I suppose, than a than Thunder Pussy at the at Hump and Hannah's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, local filmmakers, a lot of whom have Boise State ties, local authors, almost all of whom do. Right? I mean, this sort of world where we're really engaged in our in in some of the arts and culture programming became became a real natural partnership, um, and that's just sort of evolved. Then we kind of. Um, started talking to Treefort about expanding, expanding Boise State's role and becoming kind of what they call the Treefort architect, which he's been now for a couple of years. Um, and you know, and the Treefort folks are really conscientious about sponsorships. They've always wanted it to be an organic, local, kind of mission-connected experience, and I think that's why it's worked out really well for us. So, um, so that you know, on a personal level, then I mean, that's sort of the Boise State view. Um, on a personal level, we ended up with Hackfort. We had a handful of folks who kind of wanted to help program what kind of, you know, could we talk about technology and the arts, technology and education, technology and culture. And we brought, you know, we've always lucked out. We've sort of found some really great speakers and we've had look, cool local folks engaging on things. And and it sort of bubbled around on the outskirts. And people that first year, a bunch of tech companies all showed up and then, you know, it's just, but nobody really kind of got, no tech, there wasn't ever a, a real upswing of somebody who's like, I'm going to help kind of pull this together. I mean, it's a different skill set, I think, than sitting in the coding. We joked that first year, we didn't know if anybody was going to show up. And they started to show up. And at the time, we were in the shrine, right? We were we were in the actual venue part of the of the shrine during the day and we'd had to break for sound checks <laughs> and we would go. So we had, we'd go downstairs to the bar and have somebody do a little breakout sessions downstairs. So somebody could sound check upstairs and then we'd go back up and, and, and be, and the, and the panel would be sitting on the stage in front of a bunch of equipment. And I actually, and it was really fun cause it was really organic. It kind of grew out of tree for it in a really organic way. But they, uh, but the, when the people started showing up, they would sit like 10 chairs away from each other, right? So one person would come and then somebody would come when those, when every 10th chair was taken, somebody would come in and sit in the fifth chair and then somebody would come in and sit in the third chair. And it really filled in this hilarious, and it was the best example of the kind of, as a rule, and this is obviously not true of all people who work in technology, but it is a group of folks who are relatively introverted kind of comfortable on the computer, uncomfortable in a big space where you're kind of make, forcing interaction. And you, and that was, that was the physical manifestation of that. And in the end, the last people who came in had to sit in the second and fourth and sixth and eighth chairs, and they had to sit next to people. But in the end, they all did. And we, and we watched this happen, and we, and we thought, when it's finally filled up, and then we had to start, we actually had this moment where we're like, man, these guys are finally talking to each other, and now we're going to shut them up and have a bunch of panels. So we, we thought, ever since then, we've been building in social interaction time uh, and dead time and downtime and opportunities to not have to have, pro like, intentionally... Page intentionally left blank programming 
um, that has kind of become, uh, I think, a signature of Hack for It, even if people don't really realize that's what's going on. That was a long answer. What was the actual question? <laughs> <laughs> that was it. You got it. <laughs> I, you were a panelist. So this year, I was. I think that my takeaway. I mean, I saw a lot of a lot, a lot of good music, but the story for it programming itself was really strong, and those panels were all really well attended, and I liked being at the Oahe, and it felt like the right space for all those things. Um, but you were a participant at least once, maybe twice. What? No, yeah, I did the. We had, and this is a funny panel that's has evolved for a couple of years. We did it. Um, it. It's a panel of journalists, mostly working journalists. I'm kind of the one who's the one outlier. Um, and we did. We actually did it for the first a, a version of it for the first time a year earlier when Storyfort was upstairs at the Linen Building. And Chris Wynn, who is a, a writer in town and uh, got his, you know, his MFA here at Boise State, and spent his Naked, Naked Me as his book of short stories is published. He's been he's been super involved in kind of building the literary scene of Boise, and he um, has been kind of the programming lead of 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 Story for it, in conjunction with other folks from the cabin and some other places. But so last. So last year we did this, we did kind of viral, we called it Viral Idaho. And we talked about the story, you know, kind of stories that go viral today, but also looking back in history at these things that, and, and what we, def- where we landed was there are things that have happened over time that have changed how the world has seen Idaho and how we see ourselves. And those are, before the internet, that was what was viral, right? The the trial of Frank Studenberg, the trial of the century, of, you know, when the governor was blown up, and then all, you know, you had media from all over the country coming here and watching Clarence Darrow defend this uh, union organizer. Uh, you had, that was a huge thing. Evil Knievel jumping over the Snake River. That was certainly, for a five-year-old in Long Island, that was my understanding of... I guess we were in Montana. We moved from Montana to New York in 76, 77. And that was, that was what I knew about Idaho. And it kind of stayed what I knew about Idaho. And literally when I flew out here to interview at the Twin Falls Times News, I'd been living in New York City. I, one of the things he showed me was the leftover dirt pile that people can even use to jump over the Snake River. And that's probably why I moved here, let's be honest. <laughs> be, so... So that, so those things, so that was the topic the first time. Then we did a something at Modern at the Modern when they do those story campfires, and it's and every single time we've had these great crowds, and we realized that there is people are sort of wanting to talk about stuff. And this year was more about what's going on in you know, of course with with the election in November and the and and, and this was March, so people were still sort of fresh on this. What's going on in the world with news and fake news and. And so we, that's kind of what we talked about this time. And I, and to be honest with you, I thought, I, I mean, it's always fun to get up there and talk. It's such a, it's so serious and everybody's worried about it. So it's hard. It's not as much fun as talking about evil can evil. <laughs> and so, and I'm always like, how do you in, in, increase the level kind of, of the, you know, what's the entertainment level of this thing too? So we can get people engaged and have a good time and really learn something. I actually, my perspective, having sat through a lot of story for it, there were way better panels, but um, but that's kind of what we did. I mean, I thought that um, I agree with you what, that Chris, that, that the story for it folks, this was the best they'd ever done. It was amazing. It was nonstop great programming, and 
everything from right the visiting poets. I don't know if you saw it. There was a woman from Colorado. Well, she's I'm not where she's Indian via England, but she lives in Colorado. She's actually she she had written a book. She had hitchhiked through Idaho twenty some years ago and started this book of poetry, and now she's reissuing it. So she wanted to read from it. But she just stood behind the bushes on the side of the stage the whole time. They had to shove the mic into the bushes. <laughs> that was a great moment. It was really great. Uh, you know, um, Al Heathcock and um, Jay Rubin Appleman. Uh, Appleman's got a new book coming out that's going to be amazing about um, his sort of real-life experience growing up in Detroit where there was a, a child killer kind of on the loose and uh, – some reporting that he's done over the years is also going to be a TV show. I mean, the guy's really coming into his own and, and Heathcock, you know, who wrote Volt and is still is working on his novel. I mean, it was just fascinating to kind of get those guys. I just thought start to finish, it was some good stuff. Okay. But so there's this moment where, I mean, so you guys were all, like you said, you're the outlier. They're all working journalists and you have a past in journalism and you're talking about, the news and you know uh, like due diligence and how one should consume news and and these sort of things and so but the interesting thing to me at this point in time is how it seems like we're part of a national conversation and that's always the thing that's the most interesting but that's where we have in some respects the least amount of influence and that oftentimes on a local level where we actually can have a bigger influence, we can actually change the way things are. And maybe that speaks a little bit to the, this idea of tree fort and community and, and moving things in a different direction or a positive direction or any direction, I guess. But so I'm just wondering about how you personally consume media. And if there are any resources locally where you can actually have, I mean, like that's one of the things that came up in this panel is you know, you used to work in the state house. You were, you were in in the, you know, in this basement office or something where you were physically right. always in the building every single day, and you, you know, you were, you were the the fly on the wall, as it were. And that has changed. I mean, there are no reporters. There are zero reporters, and there were the AP's office used to be there, the statesman office used to be there year round, and then and uh, nobody's there now. Um, year round they all show there's a group of folks who come from around the state and kind of live there during the session um but even betsy russell who does the i am boise blog for the spokesman she's she moves back into her home office up on you know up the hill she's nearby but she's not in the building so that is that's a real that's a that's a very real change in terms of kind of people keeping an eye on the day-to-day activity of the legislature of the state government it's but it's big you know it's funny you say that that kind of national trends you know there's not boise can do a lot of things we can have great reporters we can have people whose hearts in the right place and they're they're really doing a great job but there are these national trends are affecting local media for sure and that was one of the hard things to kind of get your arms around when you're a reporter or an editor is that these these national things are going to have it, you could do the best job in the world and it doesn't matter if the company, you know, if, if a certain level of the, um, of the revenues came from national ads and the national ads are going down or, you know, to go back even farther to go to say that a certain level of the revenue came from classified ads and Craigslist 
you know, who has been in San Francisco and and Austin and New York is just is starting a Craigslist Boise and a Craigslist Idaho Falls, right? Those those moments are not driven by local needs or momentum. I mean, in the end, I mean, I'm on Craigslist. I still do that. I, I, I go and look up. This, I mean, I, I use that more than I ever use classifieds, right? It is, it was a better change for the consumer without a doubt. Um, but it was a huge, but it had a big effect on, on the revenues of the newspaper. So, so you might be winning, you know, you might be a Pulitzer finalist for Larry Craig coverage, which is a huge deal. But if the, if Macy's is not going to advertise five days a week and, you know, on a full page because they've made some decision and whoever owns Macy's, wherever they exist, then that, that has a real impact. So, so there is some, you know, you're at, you are subject to these national trends. Um, and then the, and then the company, you know, because these, you know, Sinclair owns one of the TV stations and Gannett or what used to be Gannett owns channel seven now. And what, you know, and McClatchy owns the Statesman. There are decisions made elsewhere that, that trickle down too. So that all of that happens and some of that's good and some of it's bad, but it's, it's a reality. Um, I would say from my own perspective, it's still the report, you know, if you, I because I lucked out and lived in that world and I know people personally, I kind of connect with those reporters on a more personal level. And that's what social media has sort of opened up on Twitter, uh, especially Twitter, I mean, in the local media world. And some of that came up in that discussion. You know, I remember Harrison Berry from The Weekly saying, and he's right, that there is a certain level of echo chamber in among the Boise Statehouse media. They're all, they all interact with each other. They kind of are all, they, you know, they're friends. They, they play off each other. They kind of have inside jokes and that does exist there in the, in the state house. But I also know that like Becky Boone from the AP knows more about the prison system in Idaho than anybody else. And if I hear something's going on with prisons, I'm going to go see what she's doing. And I know that Melissa Davlin, who took my place at the, at the public television is, you know, one of the things that she cares about the most is the public defender system. And she stays on that, uh, you know, more than anybody else because it's, it's, it's evolving and there's a, there are lots of money issues and there are real civil rights issues that play out in that world. And it's hard, you know, but it's a small piece of all state government. But she's really attuned to it. And it's not the only thing she is, but that's, you know, that's what she does. Bill Roberts in higher education. Um, Dent, you know, Betsy, if you, if I want to know, you know, so the personalities of these reporters and what they're all interested in helps me find the right person to know what's going on. And, and so it's a, I don't know how you translate that skill set to other people other than people who just need to pay attention for a while. Is and you realize that yeah. local organic community beats then have just developed in the various media community. Uh, yeah, and in some ways it's not. In some ways it's very. It's almost intentional, right? When I, when I was at the Statesman and I was an editor, and we knew that we weren't going to have two reporters living at the State House all the time like we used to, then you start to look at. And then the meanwhile, through the Associated Press, which has always been a partnership of papers, and then an actual additional partnership between the papers in in the state, you start to realize well, we only have X amount of resources and they only have X amount of resources. We couldn't deploy at the States on somebody to cover, to go in-depth on a private prison thing if I knew that Becky Boone from the AP was going to do it. 
Um, now there's, so for the readers, from, for the short term, the reader's perspective, a lot of reasons that's really good, right? I could say Dan Popke or whoever it was, go write about this other thing, which is also important. Becky's going to write about the private prison thing. Let her play that out. We'll run it because we have an agreement with them. We pay them AP money to run their stories. We'll get this other story covered as well. And the AP will share that with the other papers. And so we're spreading, you know, limited resources around. Now, the downside of that is you have all these different organizations who develop different expertises and sometimes it's probably good to have three or four reporters digging into something because there's a lot going on and maybe, and I'm just going to, I mean, not to implicate Becky cause she's a great reporter and everyone loves her, but like and imagine a world where she interviewed a really key person and took them off and they're just like, I'm not talking to her ever again. And I'm going to, and then they're trying to get, you know, but they have good information that would, that would feed the understanding of what's going on over there. If, Dan Popkeys of the world aren't calling that other person, it never gets out. So there's a danger in that specialization, even though I think it was a, vi- there wasn't a whole lot of other choices, right? If you have limited resources, you have to find that way to maximize the, what you have available. So I would get to, when I was a, in my final years as a statehouse reporter, this was starting to bubble up, right? And if Betsy was in the room going to write about a regular, you know, something that was going on with a bill that maybe wasn't, you know, a big investigation, you know, it's just a lot of what you do at the state house during the session is, is sports coverage, you know, it's the bottom of the seventh and Derek Jeter hit a double. It's super valuable in that game context. And in the greater context, you can say Derek Jeter is clutch, you know, he hits these runs, you know, that's an important story, but you have, you know, but it's still that play by play. And so if Betsy was going to be in there and say, this was the vote and here's the two things that I heard that were relevant and I could see that on her blog and we could run it in the paper, I needed to be in another room because otherwise no reporter was going to be in that other room. So it, it, it does come down to a series of sort of trade-offs, I think, but, um, but it's definitely harder to do when there are few, fewer people. So then we're basically out of time, but in terms of your own local news consumption, is it still primarily like print or is it all, all kinds of things that you're consuming, like taking in? I would say personally now it's almost entirely digital. Then that it's, it comes, that doesn't mean it's not done by the statesman or, you know, or local TV. Um, but I, uh, I don't watch a lot of live local television and I don't, grab the physical paper. But I think I probably read at least, you know, on Twitter, uh, especially, I, you know, what happened to me was Twitter kind of became my local news avenue and my national news avenue. It was sort of a self-selected headline service, right? I follow a lot of journalists. Um, and, they're sharing and, they, the and they share stories. their stories. Yeah. yeah, they share their stories. So I see, so I'll, you know, I see what kind of the trend is going on out there and then I'll kind of drop in, you know, I, so I end up on a lot of news sites. So I would say I'm pretty broadly reading a, a ton of news sites, but I rarely go, there's only a couple that I'll type in www.nytimes.com, right? Or idahostatesman.com or ktvb.com. I don't do that a lot. I, um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of see, I'll let, I'll let the, the editors that I've sort of chosen through my Twitter feed, 
um, do what we used to do at the paper, which was see everything that was going on and choose a handful of stories for the front page that we thought were the most important that you should read and in, in ensuing levels of uh, priority throughout the paper. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a curated, it's a curated news product. <laughs> and much like, you know, that's so Twitter, so I, I got it, sort of democratized it, right? I got, I get to choose which reporters from which places and which places who have, you know, I follow, you know, institutional sites too, Idaho State from New York Times, KTVB, those things. Um, but, you know, more importantly for me, as I follow Betsy Russell and I follow um, Katie Moeller, you know, the people that I think are doing a good job, whether they're local or, or, or from far away, and they sort of um, act as my as my news curators. And then I go to other things. And then I'm always, I read something in the New York Times and then I go to Fox News and Drudge to see what they're saying about it. <laughs> I do that a lot. In fact, Fox News and Drudge are, are two of my fastest, you know, if I type in D, the Drudge thing comes up. And I type, so you know that I'm there a lot. Do, do, um, do much podcast listening? I, you know, I don't, because I don't drive, I ride my bike and I listen to, I, I like, I'm a music guy more than, and so I do listen to, with my wife, if we do road trips, we'll do um, the, uh, Mark Marin. I think he's an amazing interviewer, which is hilarious because I would never have guessed that. And he has a few things that he obsesses over, right? It always ends up talking about, you know, how your dad and how he screwed you over. You know, you can tell what's, what's important to drug abuse, the time you got over drug abuse and the time your dad screwed you over and what that meant long term. That's in every WTF interview. Um but it's still really fascinating, and he picks people that I think are super cool. Uh, Radio Lab, I love when, they, especially when they're doing, you know, every once in a while they ease into this American Life territory and not so much sciencey, but their science stuff I love. I think they changed the game in terms of of editing and sound design in oh, terms yeah. of podcasts, and set, and and in a way they they've sort of spoiled me for things because things that I think are otherwise full of really good content that are just people talking. Sometimes I'm like, eh. <laughs> I want some like I want a choir singing colors. Right? Sure, yeah. Is it too much to ask for a giant choir singing what blue sounds like? I think that then that's something the Radio Lab is sort of really intent on doing, and so I do like those. And but they're sort of like that's to me it's like event event moments. You know, we got twelve hour drive to San Francisco. Let's listen to twelve Radio Labs in a row, and we do that. Um, so that's I, I and so some of it is just timing wise. I mean, we produce now a podcast here that's just um, mostly talking to faculty doing work or some new program, and I love it. And you know, I'll listen to those and and I'm engaged, and it's kind of cool. I just I don't have that. I I don't. It's a time thing for me. I think more than anything else. All right, so I, I'm going to cut it off here in a second, but I, I'm curious. Uh, like one of the things. Like some people are podcast people because they just they do menial things and that's how they f fill their their brain with noise, I guess. Like when they're doing mm -hmm. their dishes or raking their yard or whatever. But I'm wondering about how your reading has changed as we move from an analog culture to a digital culture. Do you still read like books in bed before you go to sleep? Yeah, I still read physical books. I still get the New Yorker. Um... You know, the magazine, we saw get National Geographic that my grandma gave me when I was a kid. And now I think my mom gets it for me. I get that. I get Lapham's Quarterly, which is just a super reedy thing, right? It's just, yeah. it's just all words. Um, so I do do that. We have, you know, I go through phases. We have a cabin in Atlanta and 
in the summer going up to the cabin, I will read a ton of books. Um, and we'll kind of, but you know, I read, I generally speaking, read the New Yorker. I always read it back to front. I don't read every story, but I give every story a chance because you never know every once in a while. The writing is amazing. Even if the topic's not something you thought you were interested in. Um, so I do that. I have read books on my phone. Um, I, I have, you know, a handful of things that I kind of just keep in, in front of me at times, but there were, there was a moment I was, I was reading this ridiculous like science fiction series by V.E. Staub. I think it's like, it's Matt. I don't know. It's like a fantasy book. And I read the first one on the plane and I flew through it. It was just one of those really quick reads. And I knew there was a second one and I couldn't find it at the airport. And that was the first book I bought on my phone on a downloaded Kindle or whatever. Yeah. And I read that whole thing. But I remember Marsha Franklin once interviewing a writer, um, Cole McCann, I think. And she said, you know what? I read your book on my phone. It was 757 page pages of swipes. And he was like, Oh my God. That's not, I did not need to hear that. It's hard enough to think, how many get somebody to turn the page 320 times? But if, <laughs> if I'm asking them to turn the page, they have to physically do something 750 times before they're done with my book. They're never, how is anyone ever going to do that? Um, so I, it is a different world. I mean, I think it does, like, I think if you sit there and read your phone at night or your Kindle, you're probably having a hard time sleeping. And I do that too. I play a stupid soccer game sometimes on my phone. Um, and then I lie there in bed wondering why I'm not asleep. So, yeah. and I, if I close my eyes, they're all blown out from the white light or whatever. So I, I mean, I do like the, the, I mean, we still have books everywhere. I joked the other day, how are we going to know, how are we going to make past snap judgments on people? Uh, if we walk into their house and there just, nobody has books period because everything, you know, they could be the most extremely well-read person I've ever met. And they just have a little iPad or a Kindle leaning against the, wall and uh, but i'm supposed to right now i need to be able to walk into their house and go no books these people are rubes well i think john waters said that i need to be able to make those snap judgments yeah don't date people without books is what john waters said (laughs) right i mean how do you yeah i mean it's like they're like oh man my kid's having trouble in school i'm like well no kidding there's not a book in his house what did you think was going to happen but now i don't know i don't know how long into my uh into my old age i'll be able to carry that prejudice well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you, Doug. I you really bet. appreciated the time. You bet. You've been listening to Greg Hahn on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about his work, visit his Twitter, maybe. I don't know. I'll figure out some place to send him if you want me to. <laughs> Twitter's fine. Okay. <laughs> for more information about the SyncBook, our guests should check out past shows. If you subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit the website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive discounts on books behind the scenes scripts bonus audio and video as well as seasonal online hangouts with the hosts all this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership thanks so much and the exercise of reason is not available only to specialists it's accessible to everyone